Well, our ushers are going to get us prepared for uh, the next portion of our time of worship together as we open the Word and, and have great expectations of what the Lord's going to share with us from it. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll bring one to your seat. Uh, we've also got some pencils there and some note sheets if those are helpful to you. Um, our food pantry on Saturday mornings has moved inside and so uh, we often end up on Saturdays with a little bit of leftover food because now our, our patrons are being able to come and kind of shop for the things that they need. So we can't just shove groceries into the car anymore and tell them you got to take this extra 30 sets of bananas or whatever we got to give out. So um, we do often have leftover food and we don't want that food to go to waste. So please, um, on Sundays, uh, if you could use it or you know somebody who could use it, please cruise on up to the fellowship hall area and in, in, by our kitchen, we'll always have some things set out that you can take with you to give to others or to enjoy as, as a family. Um, we also, if you want to check the refrigerator, often have things left over in the refrigerator. Sometimes we'll have extra gallons of milk or certain fruits or vegetables that need to be uh, chilled in order to stay well. So if you could use those things, please, after our service, go and check that out. And even if it is just to, to bless somebody else out, we would appreciate you taking those so we don't end up having to throw it away come Monday. If you've got your Bibles, you can uh, open up to Hosea. We are in chapter 2 this morning, but I want to start by kind of considering the advent of Jesus and the prophetic groundwork that was laid to anticipate his coming. After 400 years of prophetical silence from God, the Israelites needed to hear from him. Though many of them continued to live in the land of promise, they were not in control of the land. Rome was just the latest in a long line of pagan powers that exerted their force over the Hebrew people. The priesthood was becoming increasingly influenced by their secular ties to the Roman government and the externally law-focused faith of the Pharisees was driving the people to focus more on themselves and sadly less and less on Yahweh, their saving God. The people needed an intervention from the Lord. They needed hope again. If they were to continue to be the people of promise, God was going to have to radically step in and bring about a redemption. Good news was about to break forth across the land. A gospel message that the salvation God had promised his people was finally at hand. That he had not left them, nor had he forsaken them. The covenant promises that he had made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, were in no way null and void. The Messiah was indeed coming. After waiting for so long to see how God was going to bring about the restoration of his kingdom, the Messiah was going to be revealed. But first, but first, before we hear of the Messiah bursting onto the, onto the scene, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a man of peculiar ways, was the man chosen by God to break the prophetic silence of so many generations. And though the people needed hope, though they needed life and forgiveness, though they needed to see more of God's plan for redemption manifested before them, what they needed to see first was the weight of their own sin. They needed to see how much they needed the hand of God. John 1, 19 through 23 says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they said, Are you a prophet? And he answered, No. Or are you the prophet? And he answered, No. 
And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And we know how John went about making those paths straight. He stood up in a time of spiritual deadness, and he boldly preached a confrontational message of repentance. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. This was the message of John. Believe in the gospel. Even if, as John pled with his countrymen and urged them to acknowledge and turn from their own sin, God's chosen one was already walking the earth. And it would not be long before Jesus, God in the flesh, would begin to show his divine power and preach in such a way that God's plan of redemption would finally be revealed to the people. Before they were ready to receive the help of the great physician, God's people needed a clear diagnosis. They needed to see just how serious the situation was that God was about to save them from. And so John initiated that process by calling a spade a spade and declaring so much of what was wrong with Israel. Their faithlessness was laid bare by his preaching. Their lack of respect for God's law was exposed by him. And their terminal hardness of heart was revealed. And to many, to those called of God, that message pierced the heart and there was a repentant attitude, a readiness to turn from sin. Jesus alone had the power to cure them of this spiritual deadness and he would cure them. Where the people fell short of the law of God, Jesus would fulfill it, walking in perfect obedience to the commands of Scripture. Whereas the people buckled to the temptations of the world and conformed themselves to it, Jesus would stand boldly for what God had revealed was true, even if it made him an enemy to the masses. Where the people were scrambling to gain blessing for themselves and to advance their own personal kingdoms and agendas, Jesus would display utter selflessness by laying down his own life for the redemption of others suffering in their places as the true sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But the beauty of that sacrifice and resurrection was set against the backdrop of the confrontational preaching of truth that John the Baptist had used to help the people see how much they needed to turn from their sin and be forgiven. Some 700 years earlier, God had in a similar way used the prophet Hosea and even Hosea's own marriage and his own family life as a way to plead with the nation and to help them see their need for the Messiah that would one day come. And so this morning we are continuing our study in Hosea. We are in chapter 2 and we're going to read the first four verses as we study this together this morning. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. 
Would you bow with me as we pray and, and ready our hearts for this passage, God? Some difficult things preached by the prophet Hosea, some difficult things pressed upon his heart by the Lord God who revealed them to him. So I pray, God, that as we come before your word today, that we will come soft-heartedly, that we will be ready to understand your scriptures as they are proclaimed in your word, that we will not try to take this passage and cram it into a modern mindset, Lord, but that we will hear it for what it was in the day that it was preached, and we will hear it for what you intend it to be today. I pray, Lord God, that you will help us to understand uh, the weight of what it means to be your people, that we would understand that there is a, a charge for holiness and purity that can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. So help us to trust in him and to rely on him every single day to be the people that we are to be for you. We must be in Christ and abide in his grace. And so we pray that his grace would even help us to understand this passage as we preach it this morning to the power of Jesus and to the glory of his name. Amen. The hope of God's grace levied upon the covenant people at the end of chapter 1, we spoke about last week, spills over into chapter 2. Remember, we looked at the three words of judgment last week. We talked about these children of Hosea, each one of which was named in such a way that those children's names proclaimed the dangers that Israel had put themselves in, particularly the northern kingdom, had put themselves in by being disobedient to the law of God and being unloving to their brethren and to the covenant. And so at the end of that three-word of judgment section, God doesn't leave them hopeless. Remember in verses 10 and 12 of chapter 1, God reveals to them that there is yet hope, that God can make them a people who were not a people, who had lost their, people, um, their personhood status, that he would bring mercy where mercy had been withdrawn, and that the people who were scattered, as the name of Jezreel indicates, could then be sowed into the ground and, and produce a harvest of blessing and salvation for not only uh, ethnic Israel, but for all the, the nations that would be joined together to be true Israel. And so that hope and that blessing spills into chapter 2 here in the, verse, the first verse. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Within the framework of this complex metaphor of Hosea's family life, Hosea's wife, Gomer, is representative of something very specific here in chapter 2. She is representative of the collective nation of Israel, particularly the people of God who dwell in that northern kingdom. She, in some ways, embodies the whole of, of the northern kingdom. As the mother of this family construct, Gomer also represents those who have authority and influence within the northern kingdom, just as a mother would have some influence and authority over her children. With that authority, of course, comes responsibility. With that authority comes expectations. As Gomer should have been an example to Jezreel and to Lo-Ruhamah and to Lo-Ami, so too should the leaders in the north, such as the kings and the elders who held influence and those who claimed to be priests, so should they have been an influence toward covenantal faithfulness in the northern expression of the nation of Israel. And yet they were guilty of exactly the opposite of that. Their policies and dependence upon foreign powers instead of on Yahweh, their casual conduct of worship, not at the temple, but in these fabricated high places that were not prescribed by God to be places of worship, their personal breaking of the law and the neglect of love for their fellow Jews set the tone and cultivated a general unfaithfulness among the people. So, so I want to note here that Hosea's family, 
though we often are drawn to this book and intrigued by it, by the way that Hosea has to live out a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel by marrying an unfaithful wife and having these children into a broken home. Hosea's family, though, is not the main focus of the book of Hosea. It is a powerful illustration of the greater covenantal crisis that exists between Yahweh and the Hebrews in the north. Though it may be easier for us to relate to the family conflicts that the prophet himself is charged to live through, we should not get so caught up in our concerns for his marriage that we fail to see that the marriage represents the greater crisis in Israel as a whole. This story is not just about Gomer and Hosea and their children. In 2021, a group of Christian entertainers put out a movie called Redeeming Love, based on a novel by author Christine Rivers, which was in turn loosely based on the book of Hosea. It claimed to be a cinematic adaptation of the story that we're studying in this prophetic book, but they set it against the Western American backdrop of the gold rush in the 1850s. And so in this movie, a young Christian prospector, a young man, determines to pull a beautiful young woman who's lived a life of oppression and difficulty, who is stuck in a brothel as a prostitute. He tries to pull this beautiful woman out of prostitution and make her his wife. But she struggles to break free from the grip of those in the brothel who profit from her sinful prostitution. And she struggles to break through from the despairing view that she has of herself as being a worthless person who's just been used her whole life. Now, I've not seen the movie, and I don't recommend it to you. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of skin showing in this, in this film, from what I can tell in the trailers. And the trailer alone makes it abundantly clear that the story is not at all about God's love for his people, but it focuses only on the much more marketable aspect of the main character's almost stalker-like obsession with this woman. The whole message of God redeeming sinners like us appears to be lost in the romantic heroism of the young prospector who will go to any lengths to get his girl. So I don't want us to make that mistake as we study the book of Hosea. Let us not get so wrapped up in Hosea's interpersonal conflict with his wife and his children that we fail to see that this is about the greater story of God covenanting himself to his bride, which is the people of God. Hosea and Gomer's struggle is real, but the function of that God-ordained conflict is to amplify concern for the people of God who have grown cold to the God who should always remain their first love. So metaphorically, Gomer represents the collective nation and its leadership, while Gomer's children represent something slightly different. Gomer's children represent the individual Israelites who dwell within that northern kingdom. I want us to notice in the opening verse of the chapter where it says, Say to your brothers and to your sisters. This is Hosea's um, instruction from the Lord that he's to tell his kids to proclaim and to plead for re repentance in the life of the mother Gomer. But didn't we just read in chapter 1 that there's only one daughter, two sons and a daughter? So when it says here, plead to your brothers and plead to your sisters, Hosea is giving us a hint here that he's actually talking to the people of Israel, the individuals within that covenant community, which is so sick and broken, that they are to plead to the nation as a whole, and particularly to those who have authority in the nation, to repent and to lead that nation back to repentance. We've been told that there was only one sister. So here seeing this plural of sisters and brothers is a hint to us that those brothers and sisters actually are talking about 
the individuals who make up the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom. If you, sur- if you survey the history of both the southern and the northern kingdoms, you're going to see a pattern that's fairly consistent over the 500-year period of, the, uh, of, of human rule. As go the kings, so go the people. Now, this is not a hard one-to-one principle. There were times when the people had enough clarity of mind to push back against the wayward direction of their leadership. And there were certainly times when the leaders were holy, but the people were being unholy. Nevertheless, generally, as you look back over the history of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, when the kings were wicked, it caused the nation to follow in such a footstep that the people began to display that wickedness themselves. Those who fill positions of leadership and influence often set the tone for whether or not those under their leadership honored the covenant. And that is part of the reason why when we get to the New Testament, particularly in the book of James, we're warned, not let many of you become teachers. We should should cautiously move to teach the word of God and to proclaim doctrine because there's responsibility to that. There's there's grave weight to to that gifting and that position that God gives to some. Those individuals who are supposed to be an example to others, if they teach wrongly, can lead their brothers and sisters into error. And that's a serious, serious problem. We see examples throughout both the northern and southern kingdom of these kings being wicked and drawing the people away. We talked at brief last week about Ahab, this wicked king who married a woman Jezebel who did not love Yahweh at all, but worshipped these false gods, the Baals, and how that caused them to put the prophets of the true God, Yahweh, to the sword, that Jezebel ordered the slaughter of those who spoke the words of God. And so the people began to fall into this common worship of a God who was not Yahweh. And so the whole nation began, or at least the majority of the nation, began to commit adultery, in a sense, against God by worshiping those who are not truly God. We saw it in Solomon. When Solomon married foreign wives, many of whom imported their wrong religions into the household of Solomon to the point where he began to construct high places and Asherah poles so that his wives could go and offer false and profane worship to their false gods. We see it in the first Jeroboam, who was the king that first broke off away from, uh, from the southern kingdom when the northern kingdom was established. Jeroboam, uh, the son of Nebat, who established golden calves at these high places as an alternative so that people wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem and worship where they were commanded by God to worship. And then we see it now in the Jeroboam II, who is ruling at the time that Hosea is prophesying. This is Jeroboam, the son of Joash, who has led the people into a coldness to the Lord and has allowed and tolerated their disobedience to the covenant. Not only has he done that, but he's set the example himself by looking to foreign powers instead of Yahweh to help and guidance. So as the people who find themselves under a leadership that's corrupt and unfaithful to the terms of the covenant that was supposed to define them as a people, the children of Hosea are urged here to raise their protest, to plead with their mother to be the example that she has a responsibility to be. Bringing our focus back to that family of Hosea for a moment, in terms of the prophet's domestic situation, the family's in such dire straits that Hosea is bringing his own children into the conflict. Some time must have passed since the children were born and named in the first chapter because here he's reasoning with them. He's inviting them into this conflict. It's got to the point where he wants them to actually speak out against Gomer and her indiscretions as well. The union between Gomer and Hosea has begun to unravel due to Gomer's unfaithfulness. 
Their relationship's only a shadow of a covenant of marriage now. And so in verse 2, we read, Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let's pause there for a second and consider in what way Gomer is not Hosea's wife. Aren't they married? Gomer is not Hosea's wife, not in a covenantal way, because obviously he's trying to redeem this relationship. Gomer is not Hosea's wife by the way she is behaving. In her very actions, she is not behaving as though she is his wife. Next week, we're going to look more intently at the behavior that is jeopardizing the covenant bond that holds this family together. But just briefly, this chapter goes on to explain how Gomer has played the whore against her husband. And that means that literally she's committing adultery against him again and again. She has acted in shameful ways, bringing shame upon herself and her family. Her behavior in a public way is disgracing the name of her husband and the integrity of her children. And she has traded covenant promises for the bribes of unholy lovers. She's finding her joy and fulfillment everywhere but in Yahweh. And so Hosea is not her husband in in the aspect that she's not honoring Hosea as such. She's not behaving as if he has any covenant claim to her. She's not being a helpmeet to him. She's not responding to Hosea's leadership. She is not showing concern for her children as she runs after her passions and her desires. Hosea and Gomer are not yet legally divorced. And we're going to see that as this chapter and the next unfold, that that Hosea is not going to give up on Gomer. He's going to cling to her. And in doing so, he's going to illustrate to us the beauty of God's love for his covenant people. That though man again and again sins against God, that those who are his, he will not let them go. He will continue to pursue them and to even pull them out of their sin by force if he needs to. The very reason Hosea instructs their children to plead with Gomer is that he has not given up hope. He still desires to save this marriage. The idea of God issuing a certificate of divorce to his covenant people is not unheard of among the prophets, however. When you read through Isaiah and you read through Jeremiah, both of whom are major prophets, you're going to see elements of this kind of language where God is speaking particularly to the northern kingdom about a kind of divorce that will happen if they refuse to keep the terms of the covenant. We don't have enough time to delve into that too deeply this morning. But based on the writing of these major prophets, there is a sense in which Yahweh divorces the northern kingdom. They no longer function as the representative people of God. That falls solely to the the kingdom in the south, to Judah. But even Judah experiences chastisement from her groom. It can be quite different or difficult to discern what th- that divorce means and entails because when that language is used, it's used corporately of the northern kingdom, but we are so used to using that term divorce to describe what happens between two individuals. So it's not entirely easy to understand how those terms poured across to this idea of God and his covenant people, but we're going to expand our understanding of that concept in a future sermon. When Hosea declares that Gomer is no longer his wife, what we need to know this morning is that he means it in the sense that she's not behaving in any way as though she were his wife. She is his wife in title only. If one is truly dedicated to the covenant that they are in, it will manifest in a life that honors that covenant. We see that as a principle that carries over into the new covenant of grace that defines the New Testament church as well, doesn't it? True faith in Christ, a true covenant with Christ, will be accompanied 
by a shift towards personal obedience towards this God who has saved us. We see several scriptures in the New Testament that lines this out for us. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't say, keep my commandments and then I'll love you. Be very clear about that. But it does say that if you love me, if you are in a loving relationship with me, then a, a respect and obedience to the commandment is going to flow out of that loving connection that we have by grace. The regenerated heart will bear fruit for God. It won't bear fruit constantly for God. It won't bear perfect fruit for God. But the heart that is regenerated will produce fruit for the Lord. And by fruit, I mean obedience, good works that reflect the covenant commands that God gives to us. A heart that runs continuously to sin and easily forsakes the commandments of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is not a heart that belongs to her groom. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20 says, Beware of false prophets. So this is an admonition against those who claim to be in leadership, which again, there's some parallels there because the children of Gomer were to plead to their mother who had authority over them, like the individuals in the north were to plead to those who were in leadership above them to get things right. Beware of the false prophets, verse 15 says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, how? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the answer that is implied is no, they are not. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. So the obedience that flows out of a transformed heart, when somebody is saved by grace, that obedience in no way qualifies them for heaven or earns them a spot next to the Savior. But what it does is it shows the evidence of God at work in the heart of one who's been redeemed. James 2, verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Brother James is essentially helping us to understand here that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, but live as though he has nothing to do with me, then my confession rings hollow. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 warns us about a hollow confession. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now that passage of Scripture has haunted many a true believer who misunderstood us to think that if I have any sin in my life at all, that means I'm not truly a saint. That my status in God means that I have to be obedient to the commands of Scripture without fail all the time. And all that does is put the heart underneath the condemnation of the law again. That is not what Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 is saying. But what Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 is saying is that if I profess Jesus as Lord, but my actions are continually showing that I am the Lord of my heart and not Christ that the word has no bearing on what I do or do not do, and that I'm going to walk as a person who is autonomous to the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
then there's good evidence there to prove that I am not truly a part of that kingdom and that eternity and an inheritance in it is not waiting for me, but rather a judgment that comes for one who does not truly trust in Jesus Christ. So we see this same principle at work in the new covenant that is proclaimed in the old, that if you are Christ, then there will be a difference in your heart, just as the Old Testament saint. If they were Yahweh's, then there would be a desire for what is good and holy. Gomer is not acting in such a way that gives us confidence that she has love for Hosea or respect for their covenant marriage. Knowing that their union cannot continue like this forever, Hosea instructs his own children to plead with their unfaithful mother. And so her children must take up the mantle of asking God with broken hearts to repent and turn. Now the word translated to plead carries a legal meaning in, in the Hebrew. To present a formal argument against someone's sin is to plead with them. To present a formal argument. And so these, these children were to go to mother and to directly declare the things that she was doing wrong. To lay bare those sinful actions and to make her confront those sins. The children of Gomer, and in a broader sense, the citizens of the northern kingdom were responsible for this. They must begin to declare their disapproval. They're to argue with those who lead them because conscientious objectors to the rebellion and indiscretion that is being modeled by those above them can't continue to tolerate it forever. There's an urgent need for the individual Israelite to contend against the corporate Israel that has so commonly turned away from the covenant. Can you see how this kind of contention has played out in the last two years in a similar way in the New Covenant Church in America? Many members of churches whose leadership prohibited them from gathering together to take communion, to sing praises to the King, to worship together as the, the Scriptures instructs us to do, the pastoral neglect that went on when when shepherds were not going to see the saints, but were rather saying, just plug in through Zoom and see us that way. Over the last two years of the pandemic, things have undoubtedly been difficult. And I admit that the strangeness of the conflict meant that it was going to take some people a while to adapt and make sense of what was going on and how they needed to honor the instructions of Roman, Romans 13. They had to work through those things. Romans 13 tells us to to honor the governments that are put above us because they have a, a part to play in keeping us safe and administering the law. But a certain amount of time goes by and, and believers were saying, we need to get back to church. We need to be together to worship. We have to obey the commandment of Scripture. We need to understand that Romans 13 is not just a carte, carte blanche opportunity for the government to tell us how to worship our God. And yet Christians remain isolated from one another. And I've talked to brothers and sisters in the faith who said, I went to my elders, I went to my shepherds, and I pleaded with them, we got to get back together. We've got to stop this craziness of just hoping that it'll pass away in two years, three years, who knows how long, and that we can come back together safely. And some of those elders responded with a contrite heart. And, and they said, you're right, we, we need to examine the scripture. We need to think more carefully about this. Others did not. And some people are still two years into this thing, have not taken communion with their brothers and sisters, have not seen face-to-face -face their shepherds. Many church members had to plead with their pastors, and some are still not able to meet together. This is, this is heartbreaking, church. Sometimes people have to stand up and plead against those who are leading them because those who are sent to lead us, are sent to lead us 
according to what? According to the scriptures of God. They are beholden to God's word as much as we are. From our historical vantage point, we know that this pleading does not result in the northern kingdom in a repentance, in a redemption. The northern kingdom as a, as a whole does not turn from their sin and reconciliation doesn't happen. And there is a sense in which Yahweh divorces the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea is even described by some as the deathbed prophet, for he is the last voice to plead with Israel before she falls as a nation. Assyria comes in and conquers her, and they are scattered. But that does not make the pleading pointless, friends. It doesn't mean that God is wasting his time in calling Hosea to cry out against Gomer, or to call the children to cry out against their mother. Declaring the truth of God is necessary even if it is not received by those you declare it to. Your evangelism to the stubborn is still a proclamation of the beautiful truth of God's word. And it's an exaltation of Jesus. God is not only glorified when one repents and turns and is saved. God is also glorified when someone rejects the gospel and sets themselves up for the true judgment that will come in the final day. God is always exalted. We, though, have been given a charge and that charge is to preach the truth consistently and boldly as God has given it to us. You're being used if you preach that gospel, even if your function is to help that sinner to see that in the last days, God was not unmerciful, that he proclaimed the truth to you over and over again, that every opportunity for turning was presented to you. Your pleading does your own heart good as well, as it fortifies your resolve to not fall into the same self-deceptive trap that your sinful loved one is caught in in rejecting Jesus. So as you proclaim the truth, even as they reject it, you recognize, God, thank you for turning my heart because my heart was just as hard as theirs before you came and got me. So keep preaching the gospel truth regardless of whether people turn or not. It is the truth unto life. And even if it doesn't bring new life to the other individual, it continues to bless your life as you proclaim the thing that has made you new. Biblically, there are wrong ways to respond to someone's unfaithfulness. When someone responds to the sin of others in the following ways, we're going to look at a few of them this morning. It exposes a lack of love in the person who is pleading. It exposes a greater concern for one's self than for their brother or sister. So I want us to see how not to plead before we recognize the way that Hosea's children are called to plead. If you see sin in others, don't just ignore it. Don't just tolerate it. Instead of pleading, some folks just think, well, I'm just going to stay in my lane and I'm going to let them do what they think is best. I'm going to let them act upon their own conscience. I'm going to act upon mine. And I'm just going to hope that the Lord sorts it out for them. This can come from a passive mindset. It can come because some personalities are just naturally less confrontational than others. Some folks uh, would rather do algebra all day than confront a brother or sister who's in sin. Some of you are like, algebra's great. What's, what's so bad about algebra? I, I, I can't stand math. I don't, I don't enjoy it at all. Some folks, they're just naturally inclined towards peace. And so to go and to, to show a person where they are breaking the law of God, to them that just seems so out of character for themselves that they run from every opportunity to do it. But it can also come from a selfish mindset. A mindset that doesn't really care what anyone else does as long as I keep myself holy. As long as, well, I, I, I think they're wrong, but as long as I keep myself in the proper lane, as long as my feet are stuck on the straight and narrow, 
I'm just going to let everybody else take whatever path they want to take. Do you see how selfish it is to think that way? Particularly when we can look around us and see the destructive effects that sin has on the lives of those who don't claim Christ. Can we just sit back and say, man, I'm glad I'm blessed and I'm glad I'm headed to heaven while so many other people around us are hopeless and lost and they're caught in the tailspin of lies that have been tossed at them? How can we stop and not preach the truth to them? How can we ignore and tolerate the sin in others if we have the ability to share the truth with them in love? In Revelation 3.20. Um, by the way, on our website, there's some great resources there for you. If you want more teaching throughout the week, but you're really busy and you can't make it perhaps to a Sunday evening service, or you, or you can't get out to our Wednesday uh, youth program, if you want to go online to our website on the Podbean for- function, you can hear the preaching that is done on those days on, on your, your iPhone. You can, you can hear it on your device. You can broadcast it while you're commuting. Um, even our devotion that's given on Saturday mornings at the food pantry, we're recording that now. So you can have just a little 10 or 15 minute devotion that will, will encourage you through the week and get you thinking about a passage of scripture. Uh, Pastor Paul right now is preaching through the book of Revelation on Wednesday night with our youth. And you can even come in on Wednesday night if you want to be a part of that. Come in and hear the teaching that, that uh, Paul has prepared faithfully for those who come. Uh, it's a great way to grow if you've got that time available. But they're in Revelation right now. And in chapter 3, uh, verse 20 of Revelation, John, uh, by way of uh, God's inspiration, is addressing the church in Thyatira. And he says, But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. So here's an example of a people, Thyatira, who are doing some things well, who are encouraged to a degree by God in the letter, but God cannot leave it unspoken. They are putting up with a person who claims to have the revelation of God, but does not. They are putting up with a woman who is claiming that these things are acceptable and holy to God when they go absolutely against the revealed word of Scripture and the testimony of the apostles. And so he admonishes them. How can you stay quiet against this woman who continues to lead people among you astray? And the implication there is you must stand up. You must call out her sin. You must deal with this. What do the church need to do? They needed to stop ignoring the false teaching of this deceiver and confront her sin. Take away her platform so that her deception will not corrupt others any longer. So one of the the first ways to respond to somebody else's sinfulness in a wrong way is to ignore it or to tolerate it. Secondly, if you see sin in others, friends, do not applaud it. Do not applaud that sin. The Apostle Paul teaches about the lostness of man's natural state. And he says in Romans 1.32, though they, meaning the wicked who who walk in their own ways instead of God's ways, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, in other words, they don't only commit sin themselves, but they give approval to those who practice them. You might say, well, I don't do that, Pastor. I I don't applaud sinners. But what are some ways that we as Christians, as professing followers of Jesus, might applaud sin? We might applaud sin by making idols out of sinners. By thinking of people who don't call upon the name of God as the heroes that we need to listen to and that we need to conform to and that we need to be like. 
When we make idols out of sinners who are not godly and walking in the truth, then in a sense we're applauding the way that they live their lives. We are, we are saying that that's, that's acceptable and pleasing to God when it's not. We approve the sin of others and we applaud it when we laugh at the inappropriate jokes of our lawless coworkers. When we, we pretend like it's okay to, to make light of people or to, or to be discriminating or to, to hurt other people with our words and we think that's just funny. By, by laughing and by not saying, you know what, we should probably treat each other with more love than that. Then we're in a way acknowledging that their sins are acceptable. We are applauding what they are doing. And there is difficulty in this. Uh, we might refer back to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians when we preached about the idea that some things that Christians participate in, in the world, we have the freedom to do so. But the fact that we're free to do it doesn't always mean that it's a beneficial thing for us to do it. So we've got to be careful that we don't promote the things that are outwardly opposed to the gospel but are lifted up as great great things in our world. And this is difficult work as a Christian to try to understand how much we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But fighting for another's right to offend God is one of the most obvious ways that I think that, sinners to, or that Christians today are, are mistakenly applauding sin. And we just mentioned earlier in our time of prayer that this Roe versus Wade legislation, which has been a black mark on America for over 50 years now, is, a, is about to possibly be overturned by the Supreme Court in America. And that has caused hostility to ramp up towards pro-life Christians. One argument that you might run into is this. Even if you believe that your God forbids that you are not to have an abortion, shouldn't you still defend the rights of people who are not Christians to decide for themselves what they should or should not be allowed to do with their bodies? Shouldn't you give them the same basic freedoms? that they should be able to decide for themselves whether they are Christians or not and whether they live their lives in a Christian way? Well, first of all, that argument is a fallacy in and of itself because the pro-choice argument only cares about defending a person's right to choose what they should or shouldn't do with their bodies if they're over nine months old and already out of a womb. Pro-choice doesn't take into consideration the personhood of an unborn child and how their choices are very important too. And abortion ends every choice that that little boy or that little girl will ever make before they have a chance to breathe a single word. So first of all, that argument's a fallacy. Secondly, we do nothing but harm someone when we legally sanction their rebellion against God's law, which must always take precedence over the laws of the land, which are created by fallible, short-sighted human beings and not the infinitely wise God of the universe. In other words, this is our real law. And this, is, this law is not only good for us as Christians, it is good for the whole world. I'm not being post-millennial here, but I am saying that the scripture should direct our paths and tell us where to go. You cannot legislate faithfulness, but you must create order by way of the law. And in doing that, the best way to create order is to make laws that uphold the precepts of God. So don't fall into the, the, the quagmire of confusion that says that even if you're a believer and you believe that abortion is wrong, that you should give me the freedom to decide for myself whether abortion is wrong or right. You don't believe that abortion is wrong, not because it's your personal conviction. If you're a Christian, you believe it because God has proclaimed it, because it is God's conviction. So let us stand for God's convictions in this world, even if it makes the whole world opposed to us. So do not ignore the sins of others. Do not applaud the sins of others. And thirdly, if you see others in sin, don't simply gossip about them. 
Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Proverbs 16.28, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. So friends, if you see sin in a brother or sister, and you're tempted to just go and talk about that sin with somebody else without going to that individual and caring enough for them to share it, then you yourself have fallen into the track of sin. Gossip is one of the primary ways that I have historically seen the enemy tear a church apart. Let us not be the kind of people that doesn't want to see true healing in our brothers and sisters, but only wants to see the sport of, let's see who can be better than the other one in the church. That's what gossip leads to. It leads to a competition of works, and it is not suitable for the heart of one who's been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is not just a matter of do this or don't do that as we look at ways that we are not supposed to deal with the sin in others. It's a matter of love for Christ. If we love Jesus, then we should love his bride and desire to keep her holy so that when he comes for his bride, she'll be presented without spot or wrinkle or any other shade of sin within her. According to the scriptures, there is clearly a right way to respond to someone's unfaithfulness, and it is the path that Hosea lays out for his fellow countrymen. And that path is to plead with the sinner to repent. The anatomy of a biblically, biblical plea is described really well in 1 Timothy. So I want us to turn in our scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This will be really close to the end of your, your New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stop there for a moment. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is trying to help Timothy, who's an elder at Ephesus, the church of the Ephesians. He's trying to help them do what Thyatira was not doing. There are people teaching wrong things, things that might appear to be good but are not fully good. And Paul is charging his protege, Timothy, to stand for the truth and to confront those who are teaching things that are not fully true. And he says in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So plea by declaring the truth according to what God has revealed. We're not called to plea with our brothers and sisters about the way we want them to act or about our personal opinions. That's nothing more than forcing our preference on others and elevating our opinions to the authority and the force of scriptures. We don't have the freedom to do that. In Mark 2, it is asked, why do your disciples not fast? The, the, the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees are challenging Jesus. And they're saying, we fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Why don't your disciples fast the way that we do? And what those Pharisees failed to see is that it was never the command of God that God's people fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That was something the Pharisees had added to the law of God. So they were trying to press their own way of life upon these, uh, these disciples of Jesus rather than insisting that they follow the scriptures. Our plea is not for people to behave how we want them to behave. Our plea is to help them to behave according to the word. A biblical plea is different than the offer of 
godly wisdom that we might give to somebody who might do something better, right? A suggestion of what is best is approached with a different intensity than admonitions against outright sin. Sometimes you might see a brother and sister and they have two paths to go and both would be purely legal for them to take. They can take one or the other, but one is wiser than the other. And so we don't go pleading with them and demanding that they follow the wiser path, but we go saying, listen, from what I can see and from my experience, I think this path will be better for you, brother. That's different than pleading. That's counsel. But when we're pleading with a brother or sister, we are taking them to the truth and we're helping them to see how they violated the truth of God. So declare the truth. And declare the truth of God for godly reasons. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 lays this out for us. A biblical plea should be motivated, why? By a pure heart. In other words, it should be done for, not for personal motives, not to gain something for yourself, but it should be done to advance the person that you're trying to help turn away from their sins. You should love that individual and, and want to see them growing in the truth and, and freed from the sin which is keeping them from being a good testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's supposed to come from a pure heart. It's supposed to come from a good conscience. That means that the plea applies not just to the sinner, but that same plea would apply to me. Can I preach this message into the mirror and say it back to myself without conviction? I, I need to apply that plank eye concept that I should not go to my brother and, and point out their sin, which might be like a little speck in their eye, if I have a plank of wood in my own eye. That doesn't mean we never confront one another. We go and we take the plank out of our own eye first, says the scripture, and then we help our brother take the splinter out of their eye. And so we must do this with a good conscience. Am I following the very same precepts that I'm helping my uh, brother or sister understand they're in violation of? And then thirdly, are we doing it from a sincere faith? In other words, am I doing this because I am driven by the grace that has fallen to me, that I see that this God of truth and justice has taken the punishment of my sin upon his own shoulders. And so now by faith, I am being renewed and being given a second chance that I don't deserve, but is given to me as a free gift. I should correct my brother and sister because I want them to experience the same joy and relief that I feel knowing that God has loved me in that way. The last half of the passage that we're studying in Hosea and we're wrapping up begins to delve into the content of the plea. In other words, it begins to address the specific things that Gomer is guilty of. Plead with your mother. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from her, between her breasts. Now this is going to be developed in more detail in next week's sermon, but I wanted to close today by looking at one aspect of Gomer's indiscretion. Notice the language there. Gomer has exposed herself to garner wrong affection from those outside of her covenant. She has revealed parts of herself. She has become like an, an idol to be worshipped. Personally, she has painted her face. That's why the scripture says she needs to put away whoring from her face. She has painted her face with makeup in such a way that she's sending a tempting signal to potential lovers beside her husband. And that's why she's specifically instructed to put that whoring away from her face. She's presenting herself like a person of ill repute so that she might catch the eye of somebody who wants to engage her in sinful pleasures. And we see also that the way that she dresses is, is intended to send a message to people. The children of Hosea and Gomer are to plead to Gomer that she should put away her adultery from between her breasts. And this is illustrating in some ways the issue of Gomer dressing so that other men would think of her as available. 
Now, we live in a time when it is almost considered a violating sin to suggest that a woman or any person shouldn't be allowed to dress any way that they want to dress. Our inclination towards freedom of expression has dulled in some ways our ability to be convicted by the plain words of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that the guidelines God's Word is giving to us no longer stand. How we present ourselves to the people around us matters. Both men and women, how we dress, how we present ourselves to the people around us does carry some weight and significance. And if we dress in such a way that we're trying to evoke covetousness in the eyes and the hearts of those who see us, then we're failing to love our neighbors. As the Apostle Peter says to wives in the third chapter of his first letter, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the wearing of of the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning, in other words, let your decoration, your personal appearance, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So here the Apostle Peter is is heralding moderation, is saying, listen, don't don't try to be attractive to the world simply on how you look on the outside, but let your light, let your glory be the glory of Christ within you. Let it be the, the heart that God has given to you which loves what is good and acts in a way that is that is uh, cooperating with, the, with the, uh, the, the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, some might push back against that, and they might say, well, how is it a, a woman's fault if she dresses inappropriately? It's the fault of the man who has sinful thoughts. Shouldn't all the shame be upon him? This is victim shaming. And I've heard that, that, uh, that argument come largely from, from feminist circles. And I would say it's also not your fault when someone walks into your house and takes what belongs to you. That's robbery, right? And it should be punished. But you must also willing to be able to accept the responsibility that if you refuse to lock your doors, you know that you live amongst the people who are sinful and who will take your things if you do not lock them up. And so each of us must take precautions to guard against the sin that threatens all of us. There is culpability on both sides to a degree, isn't there? Now, when you unlock your door and you leave it open, that doesn't mean you're inviting someone to steal. But in wisdom, you have to know that, that sin abounds in this world. And until we, we live in a world that's been rebuilt and no longer has sin in it, uh, then we must be careful about, about exercising our freedoms in such a way that our external becomes more important than what is inside. Mothers and fathers, don't shy away from your responsibility to help your young ones see the danger and the foolishness of allowing the culture to kill our love for moderation. Sons and daughters, listen to the wisdom of your parents in this regard and do not be bitter towards them if they don't let you wear the uniform of rebellion that is so common today. Now, how does this translate metaphorically to a national level? It translates like this. The northern kingdom has put her trust in those who are not worthy of trust. She's sought the approval of those whose judgment shouldn't matter to her. She has not only tolerated the worship of false idols within her borders, but she has made provisions for them to continue to happen within her own borders. She is in a way uh, showing herself to be available to those false gods who have been allowed to dwell among the people of Israel. So there is indiscretion on the part of the nation in the north, but there's also a clear path to reconciliation. That is what is being pled here. A return to the discretion of the monogamous relationship that Gomer began with is still a possibility for her. This is the aim of the plea of Hosea and the children. 
that their mother would repent and be reconciled to her husband. And what is repentance? Repentance is first an acknowledgement of sin, isn't it? It is being willing to name what you have done wrong against the law of God. Let it be specific. Let it be honest and, and, and to the point. But repentance is acknowledgement of sin. A change of mind concerning our sin is what will follow a recognition of sin. When we think about the sin being there, we begin to grow guilty about that sin. We begin to realize that Jesus and his kindness died to cleanse us from that sin. And so our heart and our mind begins to change about that sin. We begin to think about it differently. Our attitude shifts. And then a commitment to turn from that sin springs from that changing heart that is aided by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we want to do what is right. We begin to cry out to God for help that he would help us to battle this sin and to do what we have not been able to do on our own power and our own strength. This is true repentance, friends. The children's plea does not guarantee that mom will repent. But if the path of repentance is not taken, there will be consequences. Part of the pleading involves pointing out the scriptural consequence of persisting in that sin. And so we hear in the first four verses of chapter 2 that if she does not rightly cover herself and keep her herself for her husband alone, that notice the play on words that Hosea uses here, that, that she will be exposed, that she will be abandoned in terms of that covenant, that God will leave her in the wilderness, uncovered by the, the provision that he has provided for her, his wife. If this be the case, God will expose her in a destructive way. He will lay her bare to the harsh elements uh, that formerly he protected her from. I want us to think about Genesis 3 in that regard. Upon sinning, what does God do for Adam and Eve? He covers them. He gives them a proper covering so that their guilt and their shame can be put away. And so the warning here is that if Gomer will not be a person of the covenant and rejects Yahweh, her God, then God will pull back his favor upon her and will allow her to be exposed even unto death. Now, for a closing note, I want to mention that Gomer is not the only one who hurts as a result of the unfaithfulness she has displayed. Verse 4, Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. And, and what is this, say, this is saying is that no sin only affects one person. We are a people called to live together in, in covenant with our God. So were the people of Israel. And when one sinned, the consequences of that sin spilled out to affect the others around that individual. The godly plea is never only about the person who is sinning, but it is also about the person who is pleading. Help us to be a people of purity and a people of truth. Turn from your sin. Repent, mother. Do what is right. The children know that it is best not only for Gomer if she repents, but it is best for the family. And we are out of time this morning. I'm grateful for the word of the Lord as shared through Hosea. I'm grateful that the grace of Christ makes it possible for even the sinner who has fallen into the most grievous of errors to see the error of their way, to hate their sin, and to turn to Christ and to, to cry out for help and repentance. And so if you are stuck in sin today, believer, if you call upon the name of Christ, but you've been living in a way that is continually rebellious to the command of God, I pray and plead with you, as Hosea pleaded with Gomer, to see the words of this scripture and to take them to heart today, to desire a repentant heart and to ask the Holy Spirit to give that to you today. And if you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that means you're still in the old covenant of Adam, a covenant that leads to destruction and death. And I would encourage you to think of the, the excellencies of Jesus Christ. 
Consider that God so loved the world that he would send his only son that whoever believes in him might not be forsaken forever, might not perish, but would have eternal life in him. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. Let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll have our worship team come up and lead us in one more song. God, we are grateful for you and the goodness of your heart. And we pray, Lord, that through this example of Hosea and Gomer, that you would help us to take take careful consideration about the importance of your covenants. We're grateful, Lord God, that you don't just save us in such a way that you wipe away our record and spare us from hell. You do so much more than that. You draw us into a family with you and you call us to depend upon you as father. And so I pray, God, that we would we would not forsake your covenant, that we would not be drawn to this, the sins of the world that are so tempting to the heart of man, but instead I pray that you would give us a desire for purity and contentment in you. Lord God, help us to be careful and cautious that when we go to a brother or sister who's in prayer, that we don't do it for purely selfish motives, but we do it for their good and we do it lovingly and gently and with caution. We thank you, Lord God, that the scripture is the guide by which we correct one another, and I pray that we would not go beyond its boundaries. Help us, Lord God, to be thankful for the structure it provides, the order uh, that you have given to us. We know that you're not a God of chaos, and so thank you for bringing peace. Thank you for uh, sparing us from the calamity of lostness, and help us, Lord God, to rejoice in all the ways that you make yourself known to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.